Today, I am devoted to realism. I will become a realist. I will take note of the things around me accurately. I wonder if some of these mental, emotional, social things that are happening to me and the people around me could crystallize into a novel. I must write a novel. I must slow down on all the superficial intake of pre-digested knowledge and get something that will build me up. I must take note of what is before me. The wet pants dripping on the rod under the shelf, dripping into the soap container on the side of the bathtub. The tips of my two moccasined feet peeping out from the blue mountain of my knees and curved over the rounded edge of the tub. The limp towels slouched over the rod. It bores me to write it. Who would read it? Welcome back to The Image Podcast. I'm Sophia Ross. What you just heard was a selection from Flannery O'Connor's college journal entitled Higher Mathematics. We were so fortunate to publish this journal in the latest issue of Image. And we're just as excited to present this episode of our podcast with Father Mark Bosco, who made the publication of this journal possible. Gregory Wolf sat down with Father Mark to talk about the issue, as well as Flannery O'Connor, her other journals, and her influence on contemporary writers. Mark also has a documentary coming out on PBS next year, so stay tuned for more on that. And now sit back and enjoy this conversation between Greg Wolf and Mark Bosco. Father Mark Bosco, welcome to the Image Podcast. Thank you very much, Greg. Happy to be here. Well, we're so glad that you were in Seattle um, for a meeting and that we were able to do this in person. We were going to do it over the phone, and here we are in the soundproof booth even, so it's, it's great to have you. Thanks for coming. My pleasure. So we're here today to talk about the college-era Flannery O'Connor journal that Image published in our current issue, number 94. It's a pretty exciting moment for us in a lot of ways because... As I have said from the beginning, since the very first editorial statement, the very first epigraph of the very first editorial 28-some years ago, um, Flannery O'Connor is one of our patron saints, uh, someone who really also helped give us our our moniker uh, underneath the title image of Art, Faith, Mystery, because she... She did so much, I think, for literary readers rather than theological specialists to, to raise this question of mystery. And so um, she's been central to all of our work. And when we were able to find that we would have uh, permission to publish this, it was amazing. So in order to kind of converge with the actual publication and why we're talking to you, I'm just curious to know what was the beginning of this trail um, that led to this moment of this publication? What background did you have? What interests did you have? What connections began the process? Yeah, you know, I always loved Flannery O'Connor in high school and college and was even doing some graduate work on her. But I didn't start thinking of myself as a scholar or a researcher with her until I was finishing a book on Graham Greene, of all things, and I was in London. And I was staying with a friend of a friend who named Christopher O'Hare, uh, who was obsessed with Flannery O'Connor in the 1990s and written a play, had taken classes at Harvard with uh, Sally Fitzgerald, and was under the impression that he wanted, you know, he, he needed to get some, some um, interviews done of people who knew Flannery. So staying with Chris in his home, he told me about Eric Lancair, uh, a man that Flannery O'Connor had some infatuation for um, and 
and he had copies of those letters from Eric, and he showed them to me. And I thought, oh my gosh, nobody knows about this. Or Sally Fitzgerald knows about it, and maybe one other person knows about it. So um, Sally Fitzgerald being the woman who, with her husband Robert, had hosted Flannery in their home and was the person who edited The Habit of Being and also was, at one point, hoping to write a biography of Flannery. Exactly, exactly. Probably her... her best and lifelong friend. Two of Sally Fitzgerald's kids were, um, you know, godchildren of Flannery. So there was just this really close, uh, almost family sensibility. Um, and Sally, of course, was living in Harvard, and she told Christopher, you should make these videotapes. And, and he went to go find Eric in Denmark. Those were given to me and said, would you do something with these? And I thought that I would love to. So that was my introduction to, there's still a lot to learn about Flannery O'Connor. And she's one of those people that the more you read her, the more you wonder about who she is because there's just such an artistic beauty and fascination with her work that you just want to get to know her. So that's where it all started. And because of those tapes that Chris gave me, I started using those tapes of people who knew her to see if I could make connections in stories, uh, in the novels, uh, and perhaps in biography. So I became more and more interested in a, in a bio doing a documentary on her because of these early tapes. So Chris had maybe, um, maybe 12 hours, 13 hours of tape. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Good people, all the way from Bob Giroux, her publisher, to Sally Fitzgerald, to Billy Sessions, who's now passed away, to Margaret Mann, uh, who's passed away. But people who really were her family and friends. So I decided that we could do this, <laughs> we could do this, and getting permission to do it, taking the time to do it, and getting into the archives. And it was the archives that we were going through things that they had just been given to Emory. And we found in one of the boxes this higher mathematics, this, this uh, little journal. I had heard about it from Sally, and Sally mentions it in, the, in our own interview. I had heard about it written by other biographers, but I don't think anybody had just taken it apart, you know, and looked at it um, to see what it would, uh, would manifest. And that's kind of where we are. So we were at the very kind of end of doing this documentary work when we thought, this really is, this is something new. Now, the prayer journal had come out a few years before, and it was... I mean, it was an exciting moment, not only for Flannery O'Connor fans, but really for the whole literary world, I thought, of the United States. And we thought, oh, this is a smaller thing. It does give us a, a part of her life that we don't know anything about. Kind of like the hidden years of Jesus. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you got the hidden years of Flannery. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, gosh, you've just raised a whole bunch of things I'd love to follow up a little bit upon. So, I mean, I think when we are delving into this question of a writer's unpublished writings, you know, you do tread somewhat carefully because these are documents that don't have the same status in terms of the canon and all as the published works. And of course, there's always this question of to what extent, you know, do you, are we being excessively interested in the biography? But as you say, O'Connor was a personality. I mean, she radiated a certain sense of herself, both in her nonfiction, obviously, where she's sort of speaking in her own voice, but even in her fiction, in a way, her narrator, her narrative voice has a very distinctive flavor that seems not unfair to, to look for a link to the actual human being making it. So let me just ask you first, so we back up. So some of these documents help to give us insights into her life, her biography. Do you think it's reasonable to to, does it humanize this person a little bit or does it, does it take them down if we publish these documents and reflect on them, such as those letters from the Danish book salesman that she had some romantic feelings for? I know that there's some people who, again, may, may 
seize up at that kind of idea and, oh, you're just trying to show that she wasn't the, you know, steadfast spinster that we all want her to be. Anyway, how, how do you talk, how do you think about the value of doing this kind of thing, understanding that it's, you know, it's in a hierarchy of values of, of, of a writer's legacy? Yeah, you know, when I, when I first published the letters, I was, um, certainly people who knew Flannery were very upset. A certain generation of Southern women uh, of her mother's era uh, and, uh, and Flannery's era thought that I had somehow betrayed some trust in these, in these letters. Um, but that was really the only people who thought that, right? Those who had some kind of personal link to Flannery O'Connor in her own life. For the most part, I thought it, it humanized her tremendously. Part of the, cu the culture of Flannery O'Connor studies is like, the mystery of her own life mm -hmm. allowed some kind of like, I thought far-fetched or at least, yeah, far-fetched kinds of critical biographical kind of sense. So we had the psychoanalytic Flannery O'Connor. We had Flannery O'Connor who must be a lesbian. We have Flannery O'Connor who must be this, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And I think what these letters do is it reminds us that she's just a human person developing her craft, de developing deeper in her faith. I think that's the most extraordinary thing about sure. it. You could have a very deep faith in this Catholic world of the South as a teenager and into her, your 20s. I right. mean, it's fascinating. Yeah. So I think it's a very much a humanizing thing. It's not her stories, but it does kind of give us a sense that this is a spiritual journey. And if you look at her stories, her stories are a spiritual journey from right. the earlier ones to her second, second collection. You see her opening up, rethinking, um, reassessing things, right. sometimes using the same exact models or, or, or dramas uh, of, of mother-daughters or, or, or father-sons or mother-sons, you know, but in a new way as she's kind of growing. So yeah, I think it's really, I think it's helpful. Yeah. Well, I know, for example, that I started off early on being very deeply involved with C.S. Lewis and his le legacy and I know that when some of his early letters came out to Arthur Greaves that, and there was some revelation, you know, of some sadomasochistic fantasies that he had as a very, very young man. It was very disturbing to people. But I mean, I feel like in the end, if, if particularly, I think if religious people want to sort of censor the record or hush something up, it really doesn't serve the larger purpose, even of people of faith. Because after all, as you say, it's a journey. It's a spiritual journey. These are human beings struggling with temptation, struggling with you know, how to understand what falling in love means. And that, that all g goes into their, their life path, but also to their, to their artistry. I mean, the, the story, Good Country People, I may be wrong, but I feel like that was something of the aftermath of this, right. of this sort of romantic um, f feeling she had for Eric, right? Yeah, she wrote it, well, you know, she took usually two months to write a short story and she, she writes it in four places in The Habit of Being that I wrote it in four days, I wrote it in four days. I mean, everything was coming together and she was using her artistic abilities to kind of channel a real emotional experience and making kind of universalizing it in some ways for, for her readers. I think it's fascinating. So absolutely, I think those letters were, yeah. were, were part of and parcel of that. And, and when Eric actually, when Eric actually uh, read the, the, the short story, he wrote her and said, am I Manly Pointer? Did I do this to you? kind of shocked because he didn't think he did do it, but wondering, and she kind of very nicely says in the letter back, no, I, I, I use 
you know, I'm a good, I'm a good writer. I'm going to use all the properties that are available to me. But no, you know, that's all it was was properties. You did sure. not, you did not have this kind of. Well, I think if you read that story carefully, if anything, you know, the character of Holga is really closer to Flannery oh, than absolutely. Manly Pointer is to Eric because, I mean, she is this intellectual young woman stuck in a in a house that's not intellectual with a mother that's not intellectual in the sort of boonies of Georgia. She's full of rage. She's full of frustration. And so in many ways, I think that story is self-implicating in, in a way that's, you know, I think admirable. Well, that's the great thing about Fanny O'Connor's writing, both in her, in this journal, in the prayer journal, in her letters, she turns the light on herself as well as everybody else. It's not, it's not like she's just trying to poke fun or show the satire of life or the comedy of life or the tragedy of life out there. She shines that, shines that light and she uses her own experience as a, as a sign of her own sense of, I'm on the journey. I, I'm actually broken, and now I'm, but I'm still on the journey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In need of revelation, <laughs> in, at conversion. Well said. Um, now, I don't want to let this interview go by without, just for a moment, taking a, a, a thought here to talk about the documentary that you're talking about because I realize that it may not be yet fully ready to be unveiled to the public, but what can you tell us about it? Because from what I've seen, I've seen clips from it, um, an amazing array of, of people that you've interviewed, maybe you could mention some of them, and just let us know when we, not when we will see it, but what we'll see when, God willing, it sees the light of broadcast. Sure, you know, uh, we finally have it to 90 minutes, so it's, it's, it's close, it's very close, we hope to be but in February, turning it over to um, for for final um, a final look at PBS. So the documentary has an, an array of people. Again, my friend Chris had done these things in the 19, late 1990s, and so these are the people that have passed away, which I think is just amazing that we get three. We have three hours ultimately with John Larue. Mm. I mean, excuse me, um, Bob Giroux. Bob Giroux. Bob Giroux. We have. Um, we have four hours with Sally mm. Fitzgerald, mm -hmm. um, which in some ways you hear her probably more than anybody else because of her friendship and because she's doing this narrative arc. Margaret Mann, uh, who was a cousin who was in charge of the uh, estate with, with uh, Francis and Louise Florencourt, they were sisters. Um, so we have people who have passed away who were really close. Barbara Tate, uh, who is, uh, is mentioned in, in, the, in the letters, and the habit of being. Mostly people like that were, were part of that, that, that first group of interviews. The second one, so we thought, okay, now that we have this kind of biography history, what can we do? Let's talk about artists. Yeah. What's their reaction sure. to it today? Mm -hmm. So we went around and we filmed Alice McDermott, mm. uh, Alice Walker, Tobias Wolf, Hilton Alls, Hilton who gave the most extraordinary and generous uh, interview for us uh, in New York. Tommy Lee Jones, because Tommy Lee Jones did his uh, Harvard uh, senior thesis on uh, Flannery O'Connor. Amazing. Uh, yeah, the, the, I guess the essays had just come out, Mystery and Manners, and he was working through those. We have um, many more, right. many more people. And we have them kind of talking. And so what, what we're trying to do in the film is to try to not only tell the, the, the her, her life story, sure. but trying to maybe show the sparks through these writers talking about some of her stories and why they're so provocative and why they're so exciting to, to them uh, personally. And maybe their influence? And their influence, some of them especially. What I love about some of the quotes that we're going to have in this are just so, they're so wonderful. Alice McDermott is saying, there is no one like Flannery O'Connor. 
She can't be compared to Faulkner. She can't be compared to Hemingway. She can't be compared to Eudora Welly. She is unique. And then she says with the pause, and that's good. I don't want her to be like anybody else. And it kind of puts it back in the sense that there was a bit of genius mm -hmm. to Flannery O'Connor. Yes. It's not just she was a good artist. Right. She was a genius artist, yeah. you know? Yeah. Probably my favorite quote as I'm working through this last months, knowing what's going on in the United States, especially with white privilege, racism, white supremacy, is a quote actually by a great scholar that we have interviewed named Bruce Gentry uh, down in Milledgeville, Georgia. And he says in it, we have, he says, Flannery O'Connor is the best American writer for recovering racists. Mm, wow. And what I keep on thinking about is anybody who has the privilege of class mm -hmm. and, and, and color, white, being white, we're always recovering from a sense of that privilege. And her stories, I'm seeing her stories in a whole new way of always reminding us of getting our comeuppance, thinking that, we, that this privilege is, is something God-given or in our nature. Right. That this is all socially constructed. Mm -hmm. And it's the manners of, of, of Southern life mm. that she uses to kind of poke holes in that mm. and to bring us to, to that revelation that, oh, <laughs> we are not what we think we are. Right. Yeah. So this is going to be a great documentary. And I, you know, I, I can assure our listeners that our email newsletter and our social media will let everybody know the minute it sees the light of day. Yeah. If all goes well, we'll, um, We'll have it on, um, it'll, it'll have a national broadcast uh, within a, a year of February. Wow, wow, so. gonna, be, gonna be great. So um, moving along, the, so then there was this prayer journal that came out, which I believe was written during her Iowa exactly. MFA years when she was doing the, her master's in writing. And that's obviously a bigger document than we have. It's just a, a longer and fuller right. document, more, more crafted in the sense that she's writing prayers, not just putting down thoughts. And so what moved you most about that particular document? I think um, what I loved about it, and, and a lot of people were upset that even that got published, you know, but mm -hmm. uh, it's such an intimate thing. I love the fact that you saw this 21, 22, 23-year-old person exploring faith at a level that I would consider almost amazing for a 20, 21, 22 year old doing. It, it's just, it's, uh, it's remarkable. What I see in it too is this kind of like Catholic echo of all the great spiritual autobiographies. There's just a little bit of Augustine in there and a little mm. bit of St. Francis de mm -hmm. Sales in there. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit of, of Teresa. She was, she was steeped in this stuff, right? She, was, she had read it uh, and she was rereading some of it, actually. She was reading John of the Cross, actually, while she was at mm. Iowa. Mm. And so you've got almost as if she's trying to f take on the voice or at least the stance of these people in her own way, especially some of those more moving uh, p uh, pieces. But you get almost in the, the DNA of all of her stories, all the struggles, well, the secular versus the, the sacred. You get that in there, wanting to be, wanting to keep her pride in check or her vanity in check. Uh, but also wanting to be the greatest writer that she could possibly be. Right. And faith being the thing that's going to keep that in check. Mm. You know, um, yeah. so you see all that played out right there. Right. And in, ex in an extraordinary way in, in her stories and in yeah. her letters to friends. But the prayer journal kind of, it's all the DNA is there, I think, for it. Yeah. And of course, now in this college journal, um, we have her about 
three or so years earlier, around age 18 or mm -hmm. so. She's at Georgia State College for Women, I believe. She is, that... is. yeah, 17, 18, 19, I think, really, tw maybe 20. Um, because of the war, they were doing these kind of intense classes, and so she was starting at the summer. Literally, she graduates from high school, she starts mm -hmm. 10 days later into right. college. Right, I think it's interesting that you can actually see, there may be only two sentences long or one sentence long, but you can see little mini prayers in spur interspersed that are really very similar in spirit and formulation to the ones that we'll see in much greater length in three years' time. Yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> this is a shorter document. It's, it didn't obviously rise to the point of, of meriting like a book binding and so on. So here it is, an image journal, which is great. We're, we're really thrilled and honored to be the place where this um, has appeared. But it, it to me, uh, was a moment of some uncertainty because I, I do have a conscience about, are we scraping the bottom of the barrel? Are we going after all just the juvenilia? Things that, you know, writers will ultimately, you know, be, would be terribly embarrassed to have. But I, I really came away from reading this thinking, the whole of Flannery O'Connor is here. I mean, the whole of her vision, the whole of her personality is here. Yes, it's very young, but everything is there. There's, there's the spiritual side, there's the awareness of a kind of larger secular culture that she feels a need to navigate, a sense of her dawning vocation as a writer and the kind of sacrifices that it might require, and a very, very touching vulnerability that's in there and uh, was actually picked up on in the beautiful piece that Karen Swallow Pryor wrote for The Atlantic just a few days ago. So let's leap in. Let's let's talk a bit about the College Journal. So why don't we start with just the, the kind of self-consciousness and youthful awareness. She knows she's smart, right? She right. asks herself, am I just... Am I just a kind of clever person or I, am I, do I really have this gift and what do I do with it and what's it, what's it going to involve? And I just, I found her very, in a sense, transparent and vulnerable in these pages. I did too. And it comes across because she doesn't want her mother to see it. She wants to get a lock. She's, she, she's worried about her mother. I think it's the first time that she's going to try to, in a systematic way, put into words the the thoughts in her head in a way that to to help her discern what my life will be like right and so there's almost a sense of i'm picking this up as a new way of thinking about myself by writing a journal but understand but taking it so seriously that she's worried about this kind of i don't want anybody to see this this is very you know this is part this is new to me and i don't want my mother coming in and saying you know mary flannery what are you doing you know that kind of stuff so there is that vulnerability mm. Uh, and there's this sense of embarking on something, which I love. I mean, it's, and it's filled with a bit of, I mean, it's a bit of hutzpah. I am, she goes, I mean, it's, it's embarking at this kind of level of, you know, yeah. of biblical Invoking Yahweh from page one. <laughs> I, know. I know, it's so true. But, it, but it's, even that, it's like her interest in ontology, right? Yeah. Being, yeah. you know, it's already there, yeah. this kind of massive philosophical right. dimension in a kind of jokey way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just calling it the higher mathematics obviously is itself massively tongue-in-cheek mm -hmm. because she's talking about deeply emotional, personal human issues. To call it mathematics is, you know, just a, clearly a kind of bit of irony on her part. Absolutely. I mean, to, to start with that sense of being in her own being, and, you know, Flannery O'Connor read Heidegger the minute it was translated into English. 
Mm. I mean, the four essays that were translated in the 1955, I think, I mean, she she had them. Yeah. I mean, here she is in Milledgeville at this time, right? I mean, and she's getting this book ordered of the the English translation of Heidegger, the man who, you know, wants to construct and deconstruct all being. And she's going to do the same thing in her stories, right? I know. And, you know, there's this collection of her book reviews that almost nobody reads, which yeah. is interesting because I guess it's not as interesting to people as her letters or, you know, that sort of thing. But if you look at the books that she's reviewing for her little local archdiocesan I newspaper, I mean, they're, they're volumes of theology by Hans Urs von Balthasar and philosophy by Joseph Pieper and Jacques Maritain. So it's amazing yeah. just how how she could absorb that kind right. of work. But it didn't spoil the writing. It didn't make the writing, you know, abstract or allegorical. I mean, it's all fused into this very earthy, uh, careful observation right. of social life and mores of her world. Right, right. Yeah. And what you get in this journal, more than you get in the prayer journal, is her observational satire. You know, um, she's about her mother, about her aunts. There's great social observation uh, here. Exactly. Like, this you, is the foibles of family life. <laughs> Breakfasts. And you can see where she's going to meals. get all of her material, right? Yeah. She's already doing it there. The prayer journal is more about prayer and it's, it's more about her inner struggles. But this we get these wonderful kind of segues into talking about this kind of social satire around her family. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. W at one point she says... Um, Today, I am devoted to realism. <laughs> yes. I will become a realist. I will take note of the things around me accurately. And she goes on, I must write a novel. Yeah. And, you know, that, that she gives us some snippets of that, yeah. which are really delightful. Yeah, we have, we have, we, we, we put those exact quotes into the documentary. That's what we do take out of, out of the, the higher mathematics, is that because it's just, in, it's incredibly succinct, clear, a, a, a kind of a stance, yeah. I will do this, this is yeah. what's gonna happen. And of course, she, you know, she does. <laughs> right, well I think that's her genius, and although I know it's a cliched phrase at this point in our history, it is kind of the sacramental dimension of her work, because, you know, on the one hand she can read Heidegger and von Balthasar, on the other hand she grounds everything, so you get you get the sort of high and abstract and the earthy, and very human and the foolishness of our humanity, but it's fused, it's just really fused together, which I think is one of the things that just is part of her genius to be able to do that. I mean, there are other writers like Walker Percy who are a little bit more allegorical. They're brilliant in their own way of Percy's satire and his humor and so on, but she never lets it go. There's characters don't go on talking about ideas in her. It's always grounded in action right. and personality and so on. Right, right. Yeah, and I think that um, you get that sense of her trying things out because there's different kinds of almost ways of being in the journal, right? Right. She, she kind of does this epistolary letter, you know, as a kind of a joke. And she does this kind of very, as you said, and it's almost like two or three sentences that says, it says like pure prayer. Uh, and then she's going to give you this little kind of almost juvenilia-like you know, kind of um, sass, right. you know, uh, in, in there as well. So you do, you just get the human experience of Flannery O'Connor yeah. in that time period. Yeah. Now she, um, her humor is evident here, which a lot of which, you know, comes at her own expense. I mean, she, again, she's like, she's somebody who's been given like, I don't know, she's been given an atomic bomb. She's been given this hugely powerful 
weapon of her or, or gift or just unbelievable presence of this thing. And she's trying to figure out how to, how to wield it. And, um, so she, she says things like of, of her letter writing capacity. She says, my epistolary powers enthrall me. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, if, if you didn't see the humor, you'd think she was vain. Yeah, but exactly. She knows she's got this hot potato and she's juggling it. And, um, one of the things that I think comes out in this college journal already is, and this happens to a lot of very creative people, there's this sense of being apart. Mm -hmm. um, yes. She she clearly talks here about her just her fitting in socially to the classroom to her peer group, and at one point she she starts off early on the like the first page she says she made a joke in class that she didn't laugh at her own joke, which went over even better because everybody else laughed and she didn't. But she also, there's also a kind of slight, I don't know, I felt like a slight plangency of kind of knowing that she was apart from, and would really probably never fully fit in. And that's a human thing, right? To right. feel, to feel that you're set apart, that you, that, that who you are in a way almost makes it impossible for you just to be with people in the way that, you know, you might otherwise be. And yeah, and in this journal, she's, she's, she knows it, and, but she's still not sure that she likes it. Uh, whereas by the time you get to the, the prayer journal and you get into her letters, I mean, she's kind of made peace with her difference, with her, with her uniqueness, with her being set apart. Um, she, of course, has very close friends, but even, even to this time when she's in the college, I mean, most, she doesn't really have a whole lot of friends there. Yeah. Betty Boyd, maybe. Um, Really, it's it's the t the young teachers who love her. She spends more time with 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 these young uh, professors than she even does with her own classmates. She knows that she doesn't fit in. She's kind of in between those two groups, right? And so there is something that she's both. Oh, I know it, but I kind of want to. I kind of want to be the popular person. But wait a minute, do I really want to be the popular person? We get that kind of discerning sensibility as she's going through of, well, how am I going to do my life? Yeah. I mean, there's, a, there's this awareness that she's an observer, yeah. but she also, you know, yearns to in some way be a participant. She jokes about uh, wanting to become a famous cartoonist. And of course we have that. That's another legacy that came out a few years ago is her collected cartoons, most of which she did, I guess, during those college years. Yes, all of them, really. Yeah, which also have the same social observation, some caricatures that have a, you know, a pretty strong grounding in human personality and types of people that she knew and met. And, she, and they're very funny, those cartoons. I mean, she's always got kind of a, a tall, skinny person and a kind of a more stocky w woman. And the two of them are kind of always making comments, you know. They're these two kids on campus who comment about all the craziness going on or just being in school or being in the library or watching the waves go by, the, uh, the women uh, in the military um, who kind of Trampled, and so you get all of that going on, and that's another thing you get about this this journal that you don't get in um, Iowa. The war is always in the background. Mm. Or she talks about Uncle. You know, the, Uncle wasn't around for three or four days, and, and he they would sp he would spend time every dine at dinner telling them what's going on in the in World War Two, right? right? And you do have John Sullivan, who is this guy in the military, a, a young Catholic who she she knows. And might even have some romantic feelings, although I don't know about that for sure. We think she might have been a little sweet on him. Yeah. Because there are some pages missing yeah. from this that maybe her mother 
might have taken out yeah. at some point. Yeah, or even Flannery. Yeah. I could see Flannery sure. doing it too. Sure. But but that's another piece of this that I love is that in the background, those are well, two things. That you have the war and that experience of the war from that perspective. And you have arthritis. Oh yes. Which just I mean it shocked me. I almost took a, a gasp of breath when she, you know, the, the arthritis has finally gone away. And of course, this is the first sign of lupus. Right. I and think I am getting bored with the arthritis. Wow. And you're thinking this is an 18-year-old girl. Yeah. Oh, man, that hit me hard. Yeah, me too. It really did. It, yeah. That's a good way of putting it. I yeah. was just like, oh, she was already feeling its effects. Yeah, from an early age. So, again, that's just partly what I'm saying when I say there's all of her here in yeah. a way, right? right because right. we have, I mean, there's the intellectual dimension. Um, I mean, there's several paragraphs in which she's wrestling with uh, a biography of Walt Whitman. <laughs> that's right. You know, and she's sort of debating the biographer's justice to him or the way that Whitman's being, you know, um, perhaps brought down by a biography, and then she'll switch to uh, to going to the movie theaters and and to feeling guilty about it. Right. At right. one point, <laughs> another beautiful little moment is she says, "It's just the only entry for January twenty sixth, nineteen forty four." succumbed to cinema again. <laughs> and I just love that. I mean, yeah, what, yeah, yeah, what's not to like? There's both a, there's a, there's an innocence, but also a maturity at the same time in all right. of it, you know. And I do feel like she's taking on this journal as a way to see if she can write out the humor in her, in her imagination, write out what she's seeing, write out her life in some ways. And she will put it away. I was, I think it's what forty days, and that's it. You know, um, uh, and then it's done. The prayer journal is a little longer, right? Uh, and then, of course, she's she's right into the short, the the novel, and then the short stories. Yeah. Well, this whole aspect of her kind of what was the old mythology? Um, one of the goddesses emerging full blown from the head of Zeus. I mean, she emerges full blown here because here's this section in which she talks about formal education versus her own her own like self-education and what it's doing to her in terms of her writing. So she starts one of the entries, I am disgusted with the way this process of formal education is encompassing me and I am the least bit disgusted with myself for conforming to it. So she's really talking about the kind of regimentation of learning. And then a few paragraphs later, she's talking about sending out her work. So this is somebody who in some ways is both you know, I'm sure she's the teacher's pet, as you say, because she's she's such a bright student that yeah, these young faculty right. are like, oh, there's something very precocious. like my dream student. Yeah, right, right. Um, but then she's already she's got one eye out into the public, submitting work, and so she sort of has that larger public sphere in mind early on. She wanted to communicate. There's no doubt about it. She wanted to communicate to a, a bigger world, an audience, and she thought it was going to be through cartoons, uh, especially during college and. And it's going to become really, and then she thought journalism, she goes to, to Iowa for that. And then it becomes the, the short story, which will be her, her ultimate way of communicating, I think. Well, certainly, yes, no doubt. I mean, the short stories are, are achieve a kind of perfection that, you know, it's debatable about the novels, although I, I still think they're great books in oh, their me own too. right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a, a particular affection for Wise Blood. Just, I think absolutely. it's... Absolutely. It's very funny and very clever in the way it, it's sort of antic um, humor and kind of poignant sort of reflect, reflections on, on sin and conversion and suffering too. Yeah. So what else can we say about this? I mean, it is, um, 
it, it's a document that feels to me, like I say, no embarrassment to to her to reveal, to to delve into, and a, a great way to to look into her her personality, but also her her sense of her vocation, her sense of commitment to the writing life. Oh, absolutely. And I do think she's just one of the, because of her, because she's so good, uh, her writing is so excellent and, and continually calls you back to it, almost like a poem. We have to read it over and over again. You can still get more out of her stories. I, again, I, I just go back to that. I want to know more about her life. How did this person, how are they put together who can do this kind of work? You know, there was a great line that uh, Tobias Wolf says, I'm not, I hope it's in our film, but he says, you know, in some ways teaching writing the MFA program at Stanford, I kind of had to tell students, you, you, don't have to be, you don't want to become Flannery O'Connor, but you got to go through her. Right. If you're going to be a good writer, you just, you got to know what's out there. And she's, she's formidable. You have to go through it to get to the other side. Yeah. I really, I really think, well, we, we kind of want to do that with her life too. I want to, I want to, I want to find out what, 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 what makes this person so amazing, you know? Yeah. It's funny because, you know, she, she, the story that the way she put it once in relation to the power of influence with Faulkner, as you were mentioning him earlier, she said, you know, pr the presence of Faulkner is somewhat like having, a, for a writer, you have like your donkey cart stuck on the railroad tracks with the Dixie Limited coming down <laughs> full bore on you. But, and of course, O'Connor now is like that for, yeah. for writers. I've, you know, there are some writers who are so hard to imitate and so dangerous to imitate. Annie Dillard, I think, is another one for creative nonfiction writers that I sometimes say to my students, don't try this at home. <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but you're right, you have to absorb it. Right, you, you have, have to, to understand right. what she made possible. Right, exactly. And it, that's a great way of putting it because she's about the art, she's about the art of possible. There's so many things against her. She's a, she's a woman in the 1940s and 50s and 60s writing serious fiction uh, who's Catholic and basically suffering from lupus. Right. You have a lot of things that are not really on, in your favor to be a literary person, right? And a, and, a, and and someone really well published and really well reviewed, with those those characteristics. Yeah. And 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 she so that that's why I think her life story you can be given this kind of gift. I guess I I you know I'm I'm a person of faith, so I think I think she was gifted, and I think that O'Connor realizes that through both in a spark in this journal. And more fully realized in uh, the prayer journal when she's in Iowa. Yeah. Well, it's great talking to you, Father Mark Bosco. Um, thank you for your insights. Thanks for the work that you've done to um, support a deeper knowledge of O'Connor and, um, and her work. I, I do want to end with uh, one final quote from this beautiful little college journal that we have here. She says, if anyone ever reads this while I am still alive, I think that individual will undoubtedly be the lowest, filthiest cheat that ever lived. Well, we're not guilty of that, but I hope we've done a little bit of justice to this, and we hope that people uh, listening to this will um, order the issue from Image. Um, this is the only place where you can read it, at least for now. Um, who knows about later collections of things, and so you can go to the Image website and subscribe, and we're looking forward to the documentary, and uh, uh, we'll let everyone know about that. So keep keep up the great work, and uh, hopefully we'll have another one of these conversations down the line a while. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate it. I appreciate what Image does for Flannery O'Connor as well. You got it. All right. Take care, my friend. A big thanks to Father Mark Bosco for joining us on the Image Podcast. 
If you like this interview, you should definitely check out issue 94 of Image. Flannery O'Connor's journal is only available in print and we only have a certain number of copies. The Image Podcast is produced by Image Journal, a leading literary quarterly exploring the intersection of art, faith, and mystery. Thank you to Over the Rhine for the music you're humming along to right now and our guest, Mark Bosco. We'll see you in another two weeks on the next episode of our show.